I'm doing this live stream. This is the first time I've done this. Uh, hopefully you guys will find this interesting and useful. Uh, obviously there's a lot to talk about. It's almost three weeks after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis and there've been riots and protests all over the country and all over the world, all centering around the issue of uh, racism and police brutality. Uh, and this is an issue I've, I've written about and thought about for a while. So I'm thinking to begin, some of you have been submitting questions. Uh, so I'm going to take a couple of the questions you previously submitted. And then after I, after I do a few of those, uh, then I'll just ask you to, you know, ask questions in the comment section and, um, we can go from there. Okay. So I, uh, I won't say your last names for anonymity's sake, but Joe, Joe asks, uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are regarding the wealth gap between, uh, white and black households, uh, regarding how that gap can be closed. Yes. So the, the racial wealth gap, this has been a, a common topic of conversation, I think, really dating back to 2014. I mean, folks have been talking about it before that, but it was really mainstreamed with Ta-Nehisi Coates' now famous essay, The Case for Reparations, which I believe came out in 2014. And ever since then, you, you, you see pretty frequently the racial wealth gap discussed in the media. This is the fact that the median white white household has between 10 and 20 times the wealth of the median black household, depending on which data you trust. Uh, so understandably, many people see this and they think, you know, if this is the kind of thing that sums up in a single statistic, all of the grievances that people have about systemic racism and white supremacy. And we have this very understandable instinct to, want to see different groups have roughly the same amount of wealth. Uh, we, we see that as being evidence of a fair society and any departure from equal outcomes seems like proof that society must be unfair. Now, there are a few things I, I have to say about this. One is there's no doubt in my mind that the entire history of white supremacy going back to slavery and especially you know, redlining in the 40s and 50s uh, is is partly to blame for the for the fact that the wealth gap is so large, right? It's very hard to believe that, you know, the the fact that it was harder to get a loan if you were black, or that you couldn't get a mortgage during the you know booming 40s and 50s in certain areas had no effect downstream on, you know, whether you could pass that house down to your children and. You know, you know, a, a lot of people's wealth just comes from the fact that they bought a house in the right place at the right time, uh, you know, in a city in, in Southern California in like the 60s and 70s and watched it double and triple in value over the course of a few decades. And to the extent that black people were denied that, that certainly is uh, uh, one of the causes of, of the wealth gap. But, you know, like so many other issues, uh, the, people's, the way people think about this is distorted by the fact that they only look at, you know, they only look at wealth gaps between whites and blacks as if white, whites and blacks are the only two relevant groups. 
And what that does is it creates a kind of lie of omission, <coughs> which is when you, when you just focus on the gap between, you know, white people and black people, it gives you a sense that there is something deeply strange and in need of correction about having a gap that large between groups. Uh, it's a kind of, you know, the, the, the closest of sort of official cognitive bias that, that I would label this as the coverage bias, where you just cover some examples of a fact and don't cover the others. So, you know, for example, if you cover, if you're, if you're in the Jim Crow South and you cover every instance of a black person mur murdering someone, but the newspapers just never cover the white murders, it can give a totally normal person the impression that only black people do this thing. And there's some strange fact to be explained. That's just a random example. Um, but the, with the wealth gap, you know, if you, there, there was a study in the early 2000s of, of uh, I think by a, a, a Jewish scholar that measured the median Jewish family's wealth at six or seven times the, the median conservative Protestant's wealth. Uh, which, you know, if that wealth were between black people and white people, if that if that kind of gap existed, it, you know, you could write article after article in The New York Times bemoaning the existence of this gap and reflexively attributing it to discrimination without, you know, examining any other hypotheses. And the, the I, I guess at bedrock, there are kind of two sorts of people on this issue. There are people that expect all groups to sort of have a similar amount of wealth and then view any departure as strange and, and in need of special explanation. Or there are people, I would argue there are people that have studied, you know, any multi-ethnic society anywhere and found that however you slice up society, even if you're only looking, looking at different white ethnic groups, you find rather large disparities all the time. And the reason for that is because you know, every group is different. All, all the determinants of wealth, you know, black people have a different history than white people, different culture than white people on average, different, you know, even live in different places. You know, what it, what it means to uh, make $10 in one place, you know, is not the same as the next place. So, you know, there are all of the variables that determine wealth are different between huge groups. And, you know, that, the outcomes are also different and discrimination is one input that goes into that, but it's, but it's, uh, in my estimation, not, not the central one. As far as how you could close the wealth gap, if I just stipulate that what I'm interested in, instead of making, you know, uh, you know, uh, addressing poverty as such, if I stipulate that instead, what I'm trying to do is to equalize wealth. Uh, there's two ways you can do that. One is, of course, you can make the wealthier group less wealthy. And that was uh, there's a book called I think the, the Great Leveler in which a historian talked about how you know the only in, the only examples really when you see wealth equalize is in the midst of of disasters when everyone's wealth you know goes uh, approaches zero. But if you're talking about what what people really want, which is to bring black wealth up to white wealth, um, that's obviously a very that's something you can't do from the top down unless you live in a, a in a you know centralized dictatorship. And even then, I, I would argue it's, it's probably not possible. But there are very very broadly there are things that 
would make black people wealthier. Um, I, all, all of the common sense things that a person does, but you know, there are, there are, if you think about market mechanisms that make black people richer, gentrification is a central one. And that strikes many people as crazy because they've only heard gentrification talked about as a kind of quasi colonial, um, process where white people come into Harlem or DC and, you know, displace black people that have lived there for generations. But that is by and large a myth. Uh, it's, it's hard to find a single study, rigorous economic study of gentrification that doesn't show the following. Uh, in gentrifying neighborhoods, black people get wealthier because their property values go up. In gentrifying neighborhoods, very, very, very few people are displaced by higher rents, which is to say forced to move out of their neighborhood by higher higher rents. It's not that it never happens, but it is a very, very small slice of, of the pie. Um, and of, of course, the corollary to gentrification being a wealth, you know, increasing phenomenon for black homeowners is that... Uh, yeah, someone said I should answer the questions more succinctly. That's absolutely true. Um, is that riots, riots are the opposite of gentrification. They are a wealth-destroying phenomenon for, uh, for inner-city you know, homeowners uh, who live in, in neighborhoods that, that have sustained riots. And uh, there, there's research on how much the riots of the late 60s uh, in cities all across America all across America made black people poorer uh, directly as a result. So it's just worth noting that all of the concern we've heard about the wealth gap for the past six years is completely at odds with the tendency, um, uh, you know, on the part of, you know, Twitter left intellectuals to defend the riots. They're really, they really can't be squared. Okay. I will try to do a couple more of these and um, be faster be faster. Um, be faster. Uh, okay. Uh, let's do one more. What do you think of the books white fragility and how to be an anti-racist? All right. This is a very timely question. White fragility is a book by Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo is a, um, I don't know her entire background, but she does corporate anti-bias workshops. She goes around the country uh, you know, basically giving lectures usually to groups of mostly white, but probably diverse uh, middle and upper middle class, you know, professional crowds about what they can do to address systemic racism and to, as she often likes to put it, to interrupt racism. Um, I think that's an interesting phrasing because it implies that Racism is a continuous process happening all the time, and it actually requires active effort to interrupt it. Uh, that's the perspective she's coming from. Uh, there, there's really no, uh, there's no area in life small enough for, for her not to find racism and, and white supremacy in it. And her, her basic thesis, and the reason she titles it White Fragility, is that she thinks that white people have a tendency to become fragile in conversa conversations about racism, by which she means, 
you know, say I'm, I, as a black person, I'm talking to a white person and I think something they've said or done is racist. Let's say they, they called me articulate or, you know, they, whatever it is. Um, as Robin D'Angelo views it, the white person now has, has to vigorously and verbally agree with my assessment of their racism or else if they push back or if they remain silent, if they have their own opinion, uh, they are an example of quote unquote white fragility. And she, she makes clear many times throughout the book that if you are white, there are, she actually gives bullet pointed lists. This is one of the few, few books I, I really, really try earnestly to take people I disagree with on this issue as seriously as I can. But this one was hard for me because she would have these bullet pointed lists throughout the book of all the things a white person ought not do when they are talking to a black person about race. And on that list consistently are two things, silence, which is to say you can't be silent and argumentation, which is to say you cannot disagree with what the black person is saying. So if you think about it, you can't be silent. You can't argue back. All of all that leaves is a verbal affirmative consent to what the black person is saying. Now, I, I, you know, th to me, that goes against everything I've ever learned about what it means to be, you know, a friend. Like, how can a black person and a white person actually become friends in a context where you have to verbally consent and agree to what I am saying or else you're a racist, right? That, that precludes the possibility of any kind of genuine human connection. It assumes that the white person couldn't possibly have something to contribute to the conversation, which is frankly crazy. Um, and it, it plays to this very seductive and um, bizarre urge that some white people have to feel guilty and endlessly flagellated for their awfulness. It's, it's akin to the, to what I think draws some people to Christianity, but it, it expresses itself in this desire for a black person to always tell you what you're doing wrong and to just accept their supposed wisdom. However, whatever, however much sense it makes and to just submit. Uh, I think there's a deep desire to submit to something in, in, in the human mind. And she's really cornering that market and inserting a kind of masochistic identity politics into it. Uh, but yeah, her book is, is now in the New York Times bestseller again, because supposedly this is the book you need to read if you're concerned about police brutality. Again, there, there are no actual solutions to police brutality in that book. It's a non sequitur why people are recommending that in the face of what is a real problem, namely the police killing unarmed people. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'll leave that there. Um, somebody asks any thoughts on Shelby Steele's white guilt. Yeah, that is one of the, the best books you could possibly read to understand uh, what's going on, to understand the psychology of, of American uh, race relations. Uh, Shelby Steele's basic thesis, 
which I agree with, is that in the 60s, uh, something very fundamental changed, uh, which is that America admitted that, you know, it had been perpetrating a racist system and therefore admitted that the system in place was in some sense illegitimate or had been illegitimate or had been fundamentally immoral in some basic sense. And ever since then, there's been, you know, uh, a creeping sense in which the counterculture is becoming the mainstream culture, which is to say, you know, the people that say the system is illegitimate, who actually were once the counterculture, are now completely topping the list of the New York Times. And without any irony, they don't they don't realize that they've become the dominant culture. And it's very it's very dangerous, uh, I think, when the dominant culture you know, styles itself as the underdog. Um, so I could talk about Kendi's book as well. Ibram Kendi is, is a, uh, he's, I, be, I believe he's the director of the anti-racist research uh, center, if I'm not mistaken. He writes for the Atlantic. He is a celebrated uh, intellectual. Um, and he wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And now that is, again, on the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, In the wake of George Floyd's death, it's being prescribed as the book to read. Um, I read it cover to cover, and I wrote a a very disapproving review of it in City Journal uh, called How to Be an Anti-Intellectual. It was a bit mean of a title, but, you know, it, it was... Again, it was that bad of a book. Um, this is another one that I, I, I struggled not to laugh because, and I, I want to make something clear here. I really normally don't, when I'm reading someone I disagree with, I, when I read ta Coates, no part of me laughs. You know, when I read Nicole Hannah-Jones, I rarely laugh. These are some other folks who have similar views. Um, but this one, I, I did laugh because his idea in this book is that every single policy, every single policy, just contemplate that, um, you know, raising the tax rate by, by the marginal tax rate by 1%, uh, capital gains tax, you know, whatever, think of a policy that has absolutely nothing to do in your mind with racism. That policy is either racist or anti-racist. There's no such thing as a policy being neutral with regard to racism. So if I want to, you know, if I think the speed limit should be lowered by five miles an hour in my local town, Ibram Kendi, and this is, this is not a joke. I have to prepare you for this. He wants a, a constitutional amendment that empowers a federal body to pre-clear whether my desire to, to you know, institute a local law to lower the speed limit will increase or decrease racial inequality. And if it will increase racial inequality, then that federal body will have the, uh, the power to, uh, to void the local law in, you know, West Bumble, Oklahoma. Um, you know, this is his serious proposal for how to address racism uh, you can you can find this proposal at uh, a political politico.com. I believe it's called. Let's 
make an anti-racist constitutional amendment. Um, but his idea is that, you know, every one of these micro policies is either racist or anti-racist. There's no such, no such thing as neutrality. Um, and that's the, that's the direction that, you know, the, the far left right now is pointed increasingly. Uh, these are the, these are the ideas that are, you know, um, that form uh, the increasingly mainstream response to, again, genuine problems, namely police brutality. How, how do we get it so that fewer unarmed um, Americans get shot by the police, black, white, and other? Um, how do we get it so that civilians and police trust each other more? You know, regardless of the reality, we have a perception issue. And basically everything on the left now is is pushing towards uh, you know, this idea that white people have to be endlessly guilty and self-effacing. Um, and, you know, the, the, the word of a black activist is increasingly just to be taken as scripture handed down from on high, uh, you know, which is a problem. You know, the only way you get to truth is by back and forth among lots of voices who disagree. And increasingly we're, we're pushing points of view that 50 70 percent of americans agree with off of the the mainstream op-ed pages um i'm speaking now you know senator tom cotton's op-ed to bring in the troops to to quell to quell violent riots you know for better or for worse 58 percent of americans agreed with that uh, i think his opinion was debatable but increasingly you know you can't even air those opinions and so the center of gravity on the left for, for what kind of ideas are, are being proposed, it's just moving more and more out of touch with what the typical person actually wants to see. So that's what Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi, I think, represent. And, um, you know, if this stuff is coming to, it's coming to a corporation near you. So you have you you ought to watch out for this and see my review of Kendi's book uh, for more. Okay. Any other questions? Let's see what other questions we have. Your thoughts on the UCLA professor unjustly suspended for not shortening slash canceling the final exam for selected groups of students claiming they are grieving over George George Floyd's tragedy and the accusation of his email reply being insensitive. So I didn't see the email supply. I saw, I saw a little bit about this story. Um, yeah. So students, I assume students, others will know more about the story than me, but students requested that their final exams be postponed because they were grieving the death of George Floyd. Um, so you can, you can kind of do two things with that you can laugh at it and say, okay, these people, these students, they're feigning a kind of grief for someone they didn't even know. Um, they're just trying to get out of an exam. Or you could say, just stipulate that they really feel that grief and then ask, why do they feel that grief? Um, you know, I, I have no doubt that, you know, having had incidents like this at Columbia, uh, certainly a certain number of students are just, you know, always happy to have an exam postponed and will will put on the Meryl Streep 
you know, Oscar worthy performance for it. But at the same time, some, some students really feel that. And to me, the more interesting question is, is why do they, why do they feel it? Uh, Cause it can be possible for the feeling of grief over George Floyd's death and the kind of disgust and horror at, at watching a human being die that way um, to be real. And, and for the, um, the acute outrage at the, the perception of racism to be real without the underlying, without the feeling being justified by reality. And this is, uh, I think, the, the, most important, uh, the most important false narrative to, to be as clear as possible about um, that has really hasn't been discussed nearly enough in the past few weeks, which is that um, white people get killed by the cops in precisely the same circumstances. But the media, the national media in particular, do not show it. I'm going to say that again because it's it's so important. It's it's not um, it's 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 not complicated, but it's extremely important. White people die unarmed at the hand at the hands of the cops frequently, sometimes on video, and the national media never show it. Uh, in the case of George Floyd, there was a white man named Tony Timpa who was killed by Dallas police in 2016. A police officer put his knee on Tony Timpa's upper back, uh, much like Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd's neck and kept him in a very similar position with his head face down, struggling to breathe for, uh, for 13 minutes in Tony Timpa's case and almost nine minutes in, in Floyd's case. The whole thing is caught on video and it came out three, three, uh, three years after the fact on a judge's orders. And they were laughing as they, as they killed this guy, Tony Timpa. You can see the very disturbing video on YouTube. Just type Tony Timpa. Uh, it'll be the first thing to come up most likely. So this video came out in 2019. I would, I would argue it is every bit as horrifying from, from a, just from the perspective of viewing a human being get slowly killed and have the life sort of choked out of him. It might even be slightly more disturbing because the cops are laughing about it. Um, but Tony Timpa was white. So nobody ever heard of him. If you, you know, most people just consume the news. They, they, they flip on CNN, Fox, or they just, you know, even more likely if they're, if they're younger, they just, you know, watch, they have their Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and they, their version of reality is just whatever shows up in their feed. And this go, goes back to the, you know, the coverage bias issue from earlier. This is a clear example where there is a gigantic lie of omission. Um, okay, I see a good question that I, that I will address in a moment. But this is, a, this, is a, a, this is an example where there is a huge lie of omission. Um, you know, white people are routinely getting killed in these ways. And by routinely, I don't mean it's likely to happen to any given person, right? Your, or, your, your likelihood of being killed this way is close to a lightning strike. But if you're just following every instance, you know, every, every week, roughly, a new person gets killed un unarmed by the cops. And most of those people are, are going to be white in any given year. And 
the problem is the national national media has trained us by omitting all the white cases. They have trained people and black people in particular to react to each new instance of a black person getting killed as if black people are getting uniquely hunted. And so it's no surprise, you know, fed this false narrative for many years now that when, when George Floyd was killed, many black people reacted as if they were watching members of their race, of their tribe, getting uniquely hunted. You know, that, that reaction is totally understandable given the set of facts, the, the, you know, the bias sample of facts that people have, people have gotten for several years. So when I see the kids at UCLA reacting uh, with grief, you know, I blame the national media. I, I blame the, you know, the, the tendency to just ignore all of the cases where white cops do this to white people, black cops do it to white people, black cops do it to black people, etc. So, um, so there's one question here I wanted to address that I thought was, was good. Okay. Jake M says, okay, but what if this false narrative is the noble lie we need to get, to get to police reform? Will it not be worth it? So what Jake is getting at here is sure, you know, it's true that white people get killed in this way all the time. We don't know if George Floyd died because he was black. Um, Perhaps the cops would have done it if he were white. But if this is the kind of awakening we need in order to take the issue of police brutality and police killing seriously, then isn't this isn't the false narrative just a price worth paying if if the lie was the only way that we were going to get outraged enough to do something um then you know can't we just accept that the lie is a lie and pretend it's true and then do those good things that could only come about from believing the lie so i don't think this is right for a few reasons one is the lie has had very, very serious costs already, and I don't think we're even close to finished seeing the costs of the lie. So, for example, if if we if we'd been fed the truth, which is that you know this happens to Americans of all colors, and you know we had seen the Tony Timpa video and the George Floyd video, and they were equally you know equally disseminated and equally known. Um. Would there be riots? That's one question. I'm tempted to answer that there wouldn't be. And uh, the, which means that all of the first order costs of riots uh, would, would, wouldn't have been paid. Uh, There was a, you know, and I'm talking now about the now thousands of businesses um, over all over the country, which have been looted or burned. Um, There's a first order cost to the business owners Uh, There's the fact that often those businesses don't return to those neighborhoods. Uh, You know, the the businesses that left Ferguson in 2014 uh, still haven't returned uh, as a result of the riots. Many of those were black owned for for whatever that's worth. Um, There's the the second order cost of the fact that, you know, if you care about investing in disadvantaged 
inner city neighborhoods. The, the, the thing that deters investment most of all is crime or the credible threat of crime, the risk of crime. When, if I know that there's a 10% chance that this neighborhood is going to, uh, you know, be uh, victimized by another riot in the next decade, that is a huge deterrent to me moving into the neighborhood myself or investing money in the neighborhood, building something in the neighborhood. So all of the problems of, of poverty and disemployment, of, of poverty and unemployment that riots uh, claim to be fighting against, they also exacerbate. There are many places in Detroit and Newark where you can still see the evidence of the riots in the, in the late 60s. So my point here is that the lie, the lie is not noble. The lie has had a, a deep cost that many people are, are tempted and, and will forever be tempted to downplay. Um, and I don't think we've seen the end of, end of that cost because, uh, you know, last year, uh, roughly 55 unarmed people were killed by the cops. Now, I think we can get that number down with, with, with better training, with better accountability, um, with, you know, being more scrupulous with who we let become cops to begin with. We can get that number down. But I would bet my life that we can't get it to zero. I just don't, I don't think it's possible. America has uh, more guns than people, which means that when a cop pulls someone over in America, there is a very real risk that the person has a gun in the glove compartment and is about to shoot the cop. And in fact, the cop gets shot roughly every day. So what that means is the mistake that cops sometimes make, which is the suspect is reaching for their wallet or the suspect is for some reason moving their arm and it, it seems like they're about to uh, grab a gun and the cop shoots. That happens to white people and black people and Hispanic people and Asians. But um, that mistake actually is inherent in policing America to some extent. We can probably reduce it, but we can't get rid of it. And what that means is over the next few decades, there are going to be videos of people getting killed by the cops. Some of those people are going to be black, no matter how well we do. That is just a fact. We can do better, but we can't get it to zero. And the, one of the big costs of the noble lie, or the, the allegedly noble lie, is that every time that happened, because people have imbibed this false narrative that the police are hunting and killing black people, they've involved in, you know, imbibed various degrees of this narrative. Some, some have swallowed it whole and some believe it to some extent. But because there is that huge perception of unfairness that this overwhelmingly happens to black people, no matter how much we pr progress we make, so long as there is you know, one video every few years, which is virtually guaranteed no matter what we do, we are liable to see riots in American major cities. And that is not a problem. That is a problem that can only be solved by fixing the false perception. Um, so in some, you know, the, the noble lies costing us much more than you think. Um, I think we could make a lot of progress without it. Um, I, in general, I, I don't think one needs to lie in order to, you know, I, I have no doubt that this may have sped up certain reforms, sped up a conversation, but 
in the counterfactual where we took a different route with this conversation and we're more in touch with reality, I don't, I don't think, I don't see, see a reason why that would preclude, you know, the, the wise police reforms that we actually want. Um, so that's my answer to that. Uh, let's see. Um, what do you think of shutdown STEM? What is your reaction to the STEM community joining in, joining in on the anti-racist bandwagon? Um, what do you think about over-policing in poor communities? Yeah, so I think this is, so this gets into, you know, what Black Lives Matter is right about. Um, uh, I think there's no doubt that many Black communities have been over-policed, especially with regard to petty drug crimes. Um, you know, I think of stop and frisk, for example, at, you know, there, there was a, a controversy a few months ago when I, I think it was um, former Mayor Bloomberg uh, was in the primary and was sort of forced to address some comments he had made about, uh, you know, racial profiling with regard to NYPD's stop and frisk policy. And he said something that on its face, you know, logically seems true, which is that if you're in New York where over 95% of the shootings are perpetrated by black and Hispanic shooters. Um, and you try to do any kind of policing initiative, any kind of even a colorblind aggressive policing initiative, just paying attention to neighborhoods by, by stats, you're going to basically be exclusively focusing on black and Hispanic people. And that's what Mike Bloomberg said uh, in defense of stop and frisk. Of course, there is a there is a problem, which is that part of good policing is having trust with civilians. And even if a policy makes sense from a st statistical point of view, uh, it might be it might be so aggressive that you lose more in trust than you gain in deterring crime. So I think there's you know there's a whole generation of of black and Hispanic boys in New York that grew up being stopped and frisked and the majority of these uh boys were doing nothing um and you know what that does is it just creates uh it's very difficult to change someone's perception of the cops once they have been you know unfairly or you know from their perspective unfairly manhandled or searched especially if the person is black or Hispanic and it's being done by a white cop where the perception, if not the reality of racism is, is almost inevitable in some cases. Once that guy has, has been frisked at the age of 18 and he knows there's nothing on him and the cop is a bit of a dick, it's very difficult for him to take any kind of, or it becomes that much more difficult for him to take, you know, an under to, for, for him to have an understanding of how difficult it is to be a cop and how important cops are. And so you can permanently spoil relationships or almost permanently with, with whole communities by policing too aggressively by policing, you know, things like weed, which are rather harmless. Um, you know, it, it gives the perception that the cops are just out to get you. 
when in many of these neighborhoods, violent crimes are going, you know, largely unsolved, but people are getting busted for weed. You know, perception absolutely matters in, in that case. And that's something that Black Lives Matter is roughly on the right side, on the correct side of that issue. Um, okay, let's let's look at some more questions here. How would you describe your project? What do you hope to accomplish over time with your work? Uh, it's a tough question to answer. Um a lot of questions here. Hi, Coleman. What do you think is an effective strategy when debating someone on the far left or right who's using an emotional argument, especially in the context of race or politically correct issues? Okay, I have to imagine that's a question that a lot of people resonate with. Um, there are, you know, if you've met a lot of people and tried discussing politics with a lot of people, inevitably you've realized that people think very differently. Different people think very differently about politics. Um, many people, many people, uh, many people t don't even see the word partisanship as a, as a bad word necessarily, because it's so clear to them that one or the other party is the bad guy. Um, and, I, I do find I find that that kind of person can be tough to talk to because, you know, they inevitably don't see the hypocrisy on their own side. Um, but, you know, another divide is, is there are there are people who definitely, you know, I, I would resist the binary of there are people who are emotional and people who aren't. But there are people who, uh, you know, people's emotions operate very differently uh, in, in how they think, because, you know, the truth is even the most logical Spock like person in the world, you know, at some level emotion is, is motivating them to care about the issue or else why, why would they care about it? So I think that's a false binary, but it's, it's no doubt that there's a type of person that, you know, sees a story on the news, sees someone suffering and then just believes the first the first person who comes in and says, I know what the, I, I know what has caused this suffering. It's these bad people. Um, these, you know, usually rich and white bad men. And what we have to do is be on the right side of history. And, you know, if you try to throw a statistic at this person, they will look at you like you're speaking Chinese because statistics are not, you know, part of the, you know, it's, they're, it's just not part of the concepts that they that they are dealing with when they think about politics, uh, you know, um, in a normal moment. But then there's another type of person who, you know, perhaps seems more detached and is just like really trying to figure out what what is true. Um, and it can be extremely difficult and painful and friendship destroying and even relationship destroying for people on, you know, people with different cognitive styles to try to, um, you know, actually have a conversation because, you know, if you're someone who enjoys doing research and looking at numbers and trying to get to the bottom of what is true with, you know, you know, empirically, 
you risk coming across as just, you know, frankly, autistic. Uh, and, you know, many people just interpret that as a lack of emotion or a lack of, uh, you know, caring about the issue in the right way. And, you know, I can't say I have so many tips for trying to bridge this gap, but, you know, I, it definitely is possible to, to improve. To, to, it's possible to get much better at talking to people who aren't like you, um, who don't think like you. You know, first, what you want to do is, you know, try to understand how they think of things. You know, try to always have a sense of humor if you can. I know that that can be tough and a sense of humor seems to be outlawed right now. But trying to understand how they think of things, why they think what they do, um, you know, asking questions. You know, I think a, a great strategy is just to always find something you, dis you agree with in what they said. And you can almost always find something, um, even if it's something they only implied. And just start with that. Say, well, here, here's, here's where I agree. Then lay out where you agree. And that just creates a little buffer between your disagreement and, um, you know, you know, if they make, if they say anything that you think is true, just say, that's true. That's a great point. And then go on to, you know, the things that you disagree with. I think just doing that gets you, can get you halfway, can get you halfway there. And, you know, ultimately, what you want to always do is make sure that you yourself aren't being too dogmatic and too uh, close-minded and too rigid because, you know, it's, it's extremely easy to find ways in which the other person is being dogmatic, but ultimately, you know, you only have control over your own mind and only limited control at that. So, okay. Let's see. How does your, okay, question on the future. Uh, do you think that Candace Owens, Owens's recent comments relating to Mr. Floyd's criminal history have had a positive or negative effect on public discourse? Um, so I saw, I, th I think I saw most, if not all of the video of her discussing uh, uh George Floyd and her basic comment was that um, Mr. That George Floyd is being held up as a hero and that, you know, only black people do this where they hold up people with criminal histories as heroes and that people should stop doing this. That was Candace Owens's point. Uh, you know, when I heard it, I just thought it was neither here nor there uh, because, you know, it, it in the first place, I, I'm not sure people are holding George Floyd up as a hero so much as holding him up as an example of like sort of a paradigm victim. Um, you know, the, the criminal history is irrelevant. The, the cops, the cop who had his knee on George Floyd's neck didn't know his criminal history. He couldn't have possibly been reacting to his criminal history. If he did, know his criminal history and reacted in the way he did, that would be abhorrent. It would be a kind of 
you know, a deeply sick and bizarre kind of revenge, you know, you know, it should, it should be obvious that if you have a criminal history, you don't somehow deserve by virtue of that history to be treated the way George Floyd was or the way Tony Temple was. So it seemed like, um, frankly, a distraction from what people, you know, Black Lives Matter people actually care about. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just don't I don't see how that moves the conversation forward at all. Um, OK. Have you considered trying to get on JRE to discuss the facts? Um, I, I, I don't know how one just gets on JRE, but I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Rogan. I have been for a long time. Uh, real quick, I recommend, okay. How does your experience, what practical steps can we take to normalize the debate? What happened to the Washington Post stats? So what practical takes steps can we take to normalize the debate? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a very good question. Ultimately, you know, just being willing to talk about this issue and voice your true opinion on it and make mistakes and, you know, with, with the people in your personal lives, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your partners, um, all of that matters. You know, what, what happens often is people get into this situation of preference falsification where they think they're the only one in the room who is, for example, skeptical that there is a widespread problem of racist police killings. They're not the only people in the room. The truth is that, you know, the, the people who believe this false narrative the most end up taking a lot of space, even if they represent a very small proportion of the population. And so it gives everyone else the impression that if they were to speak up, they you know, they would be in such a small minority that they might as well just sever all ties with human beings and, you know, do a, go on an Island like castaway, but that is, it's not, it's not the truth. And, you know, every, every moment that you can publicly make it known that, you know, you're a normal person and you have this particular opinion, if it comes up naturally, certainly um, the more, the more people do that, the more the conversation becomes normalized because there is a conversation to, to have through here, uh, to, to have about these issues. Um, and then what happened to the Washington post stats? Um, so, you know, a few, a few, maybe a week ago, the number of unarmed people killed in 2019 went from 41 to 55. Um, not because, more people somehow got killed retroactively, but because people were classified that had been pre previously been classified as armed had, uh, had changed to unarmed. So I think I'm not worried about this. You know, I think the people who keep that database are pretty careful. It's not to say they, they don't have any, I mean, the bias of course, right now is to inflate the issue. Um, but, you know, I've looked at, at a lot of these cases and the problem is there are just really 
there are lots of gray areas where, you know, it, it's unclear what it means to say that someone was armed or, or unarmed. So, for example, there was one guy who had a gun in the car and was was grabbing the cop's gun at the time he was shot. Is he armed? Is he unarmed? Different databases are going to classify that differently. So I, I do want to say one thing. There's this this website, mappingpoliceviolence.org, which is getting circulated uh, now. And I, I just want to put you all on notice that this database is trash. Um, you know, they have they have twice the number of people dying uh, unarmed as the Washington Post database. And the reason why is because they're extremely dishonest about what it means to get killed unarmed by a cop. I'll give one example. Uh, there's a black couple and they got into a domestic violence dispute and the woman killed the man in self-defense. Uh, they were either married or, or a girlfriend, boyfriend. The mapping police violence database counts this as an example of a black person unarmed getting killed by a cop because get this, the woman happened to be a U.S. Border Patrol agent, right? That was her job. And then she went home, got in a fight with her also black boyfriend, shot him, and he's now on the list with Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and the rest. And people are circulating this this database as if it's anything more than, um, you know, uh, an activist, just, you know, activist-created, deeply biased um, BS, frankly. So Washington Post is the best database I know of. We still don't have a federal database, but, but that's, that's where we stand. Your opinions on the removal of certain statues. I know it's not a policy change, but I wonder if the symbolic change makes a positive difference. Yeah. So, um, many people have, I, I know, uh, governor Ralph Northam, reacted to George Floyd by taking down a statue of some, some Confederate. Um, you know, I don't have a strong opinion on this, frankly. I think ultimately a statue is a statue, but I understand that they have deep symbolic significance for people. Um, I, I know there was a Washington Post poll uh, a few years ago, which asked, I think it was Virginians, if, if they wanted Confederate stat statues uh, torn down and something like 30% of the black respondents said, no, what that tells me is, is, you know, the meaning of a statue can be very different to, to different people. The people, you know, who have the Confederate flags in their trucks and say long live the Confederacy and whatnot. And uh, you know, they might see a Confederate statue and, it could mean one thing to them. And that thing could definitely be inflected with racism and genuine white supremacy. On the other hand, if you grow up with a statue that's like in your town, that could just be, you could just have a tie to that particular symbol that has very little to do with white supremacy or, or anything like that. At the same time, you know, some of these statues are coming down. A lot of people want them down. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it because I don't particularly care about the statues, but it's worth saying two things. One is that they're the movement that is tearing the statues down 
these people, they, they will never get to a point where the last statue was torn down and they say, well, that's it. Actually, that's everything we wanted. It's in the nature of their politics that it has no end. And that is a very important thing to keep in mind when you're evaluating this movement. It's not as if they have a list of, of great reforms that they want. And if they got every last one, they would, you know, they would stop and say, okay, that's enough. That's where we wanted that wherever they are, wherever we are, they will always go one, one step more radical, whether it's wise or not consequences be damned. Uh, because that's the, status incentive structure that they're operating under the person to go more radical is the person who gets more status. Uh, that's the algorithm psychologically that operates on the progressive left. So by all means, take down, take down the, the Confederate statues, but just understand that there is, um, you know, there's no reason that, that, that they won't advocate to take down Jefferson and Washington. And at some point, you know, their, their sim symbols clash with symbols that are really important to other people. And we have this deep value clash over how proud one should be of America. And that's, um, it's dangerous to have that clash. You know, the, the potential for that to, to go violent is, I think, um, keener now than, than it, than it is, uh, or than it has been. Um, Colette is great, but aren't we preaching to the choir? Shouldn't we try to publish in New York Times, Guardian, etc.? Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I would, I often try to, uh, I, I always try to put myself in situations where I'm not preaching to the choir, but often uh, I get yelled out of the room. Let's put it that way. Uh, but it's, it's, trust me, it's not for a lack of trying. Okay, Coleman, what are your favorite books, sir? Sir, all right. Um, Race-related or not? Well, I guess since we're in this moment, I'll... Yeah, Shelby Steele is great. White Guilt. He has another book called Shame, which is excellent. I think it captures the psychology of, of, America, uh, of Americans with regard to the race issue um, to a T. Um. John McWhorter had some books that were foundational for me. Uh, Authentically Black is an essay collection that he has from the early 2000s. Winning the Race is another great one by John McWhorter. Um, Thomas Sowell, it's, it's uh, difficult to name a specific book because he's, you know, he's written the same book in, you know, 15 different times, but... Uh, intellectuals and race is great. Black rednecks and white liberals is great. Uh, the economics and politics of race. If you're interested in political philosophy and the very deep differences between, um, you know, the, the differing theories of human nature that motivate different, uh, you know, ways of thinking about politics, the book conflict of visions is great. All right. <clears throat> All right, I'll take one more question and then I will have to wrap this up. But this has been awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming. And if you like this, please let me know. Please let me know what I could do differently. 
and uh, this could become a regular thing. Okay, 245 homicides in Chicago this year already. In 2016, 15-year-old Demetrius Griffin burned alive. I have not heard of that. No one charged. Most don't want a risk to risk life talking to police. Mistrust will only grow now. Why no one discussing? Okay, a little bit sentence fragment there. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is one of the recurring themes uh, in this argument is, um, you know, black on black crime. And this is, I think, one of the touchiest subjects uh, because, you know, I've seen I've seen it play out in real life. I've seen it play out in the media where someone is talking about police violence. And then someone says, well, what about black crime? And people have very different reactions to that argument. There's a certain type of person who hears the what about black crime argument and says, well, why are you changing the subject? Uh, we were talking about police violence. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, it's not that I don't want to talk about black crime. You know, there's black crime, there's white crime, and they're just kind of dismissive of it. And then there's another person who sees it as, as a knockdown argument to sort of all the claims that Black Lives Matter makes. Um, so here, here, this is my point of view. My point of view is, is a few things. One, yes, they are separate issues um, in some sense, which is to say we could have a whole hour-long conversation about police violence and we wouldn't have to, we, we, we wouldn't be under any obligation to talk about, you know, black on black or white on white homicide, because that's just not the scope of the conversation. Fair. So, so the critics of that argument kind of have a point in the sense that you can risk changing the topic sometimes. On the other hand, black lives matter, lest you forget, the whole thing was started because of a white on black homicide, not police brutality. Um, um, Trayvon Martin was not killed by a cop. Ahmaud Arbery was not killed by a cop. So Black Lives Matter is very much concerned about homicide too, only when it's a white person that kills a black person. So they've already, in my, in my opinion, they've already opened the door to a conversation about homicide in general. Um, and I think it is valid to come back and say, why are you not talking about the elephant in the room? And that's my second point, which is this, this is the elephant in the room. Okay. Um, homicide is the number one cause of death for black men in their twenties and, and in their early thirties for that matter. The number one cause of death. That is not true for white men or Hispanic men of any age. Um, the the main reason people don't want to talk about this is because it is embarrassing there is there is a shame that comes along with in many black people's minds especially and white people for that matter about acknowledging that this central problem is still going on that america has a, a violent crime rate, an order of magnitude higher than our European peers. And that is almost entirely a consequence of the black violent crime rate. Um, and 
it is much more comfortable for people to point the finger at the police. It's, it's easier to be mad at a cop than it is to be mad at, uh, you know, a black kid who killing another black kid in St. Louis or Chicago. The cop is a, is a figure of authority. He seems to represent, you know, uh, the man. He seems to represent power. And one feels one is telling truth to power by standing up against the cops. But it feels rather like bullying someone who was born with nothing to complain about black on black homicide. Okay, fair enough. I acknowledge all of that psychological reality. And I get it myself. I understand it subjectively in the first person because I feel it too. However, there's just no getting around that this is a central problem. It's, it's a main problem, which is to say, if I could fix police brutality, which is to say, you know, do all the reforms that, you know, that, that all the good reforms that people want, or bring the black violent crime rate down to the white rate, you'd be a fool not to choose the second one. If you think of all of the externalities of crime, we're not just talking about the lives lost, although that should be enough. We're talking about um, we're talking about neighborhoods that don't get investment, neighborhoods that no one wants to move to, property values stay low, uh, people stay poor, um, stores have to charge higher prices because they get robbed and they pass those you know those uh, um, costs onto their consumer. They they need to afford bulletproof glass. That's a cost. You know the the, the you know, the poor pay more for groceries in some cases for, for, for these reasons. Um, that all is a downstream consequence of crime. And so to wonder why Black Lives Matter is not addressing this issue, it is it has been dismissed as it's people on the left put this in a category of like a Tucker Carlson right wing talking point that can be ignored without any further thought. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, and, you know, whether everyone on the right is using this point in good faith or not, you know, again, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what's going through Sean Hannity's head when he complains about black on black crime. And frankly, I don't care. So, so I'll stipulate that he is, except that he is doing it in bad faith. Sure. I'll just, for the sake of argument, let's say that that's true. It's still a fact that this is a central problem. And who cares if someone is using it in bad faith? I'm sorry. You know, um, that's not that's not a good enough reason not to talk about it. People have this idea that if your enemy, you know, if your political enemy can use anything against you, then you shouldn't, that then you you should downplay it as much as possible. Um, in fact, I think that's a that's a huge mistake. I think, if anything, if you're smart, you talk about the problem more in order to take their thunder away so that they can't claim it. Um, so so that's my point of view on that. I think uh, uh, it's it is the central problem. And it's totally valid to worry about it in the context of Black Lives Matter, given um, how they have played. Uh, their hand on these issues. Okay. So that does it for this one.
please, please give me feedback. I've never done this before and I want to make sure it's as interesting an experience for you as possible. So let me know and uh, everyone be well, try to stay sane in these times, stay off social media. If it's making you stressed, Um, hang out with real people in your life or don't, if you're still social distancing until next time.